We are beginning our study of ethics. Thank you for reminding me to turn on the uh, recorder. But yeah, if somebody wanted to give just a, just throw up a defi definition of ethics. What are ethics? Living right. Living right, okay. Yeah, it's basically discerning right from wrong, right, and how do you make an ethical um, decision. So why is it important to study ethics? So that we can live right, okay? I, because sometimes it's complicated. Okay. Because life isn't always as easy to know what is right. And yeah. that, like that, that, the flow down of like goodness, like, uh -huh. like how it trickles down into some really complex situations is, it it's, can be sticky. Yeah, and yeah, sometimes we, it's, it's not that apparent, like what is the right thing to do in this situation, right? I mean, so what, why is there like controversy about what is the right thing to do? I mean, if we always knew the right thing to do all the time, I mean, we wouldn't really have to study it. It's just like Jiminy Cricket, right? Follow your conscience. Let your conscience be your guide and you're good. But why, um, why is it kind of, why is the right thing to do kind of murky sometimes? Sometimes it doesn't benefit us. Sometimes it doesn't benefit us. Because if there are, if everybody in there, in the world, draws lines in different places, and you can't agree, it leads to conflict. Okay. And so therein lies the inherent uh, struggle and the tension uh -huh. of what is ethical okay. and what is right. There is some disagreement about what is ethical and what is right. You're going to say something? To me, in this day and age, it just boils down to a simple saying of anymore, what's right is wrong, and mm -hmm. what's wrong is right. Yeah. And it gets very confusing because some people want to split hairs and mm -hmm. make what isn't ethical <clears throat> yeah. to be ethical anymore. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't change things as far as... God's concerned. Yeah. But it's not ethical in the Bible. It still isn't ethical yeah. today. And you make an important point, Judy. It's like, what, it's not ethical in the Bible, right? And so, clearly, you know, we're Flint Hills Bible Church. The Bible is our middle name. Of course, we're going to do what the Bible says. But when you look at the broader study of ethics, um, there's kind of four general ways in which people determine right from wrong, okay? So I'm going to give you, you know, just some terms to consider. Uh, you know, the first thing that people might do you know, they will look, they will determine um, ethics by outcomes, okay? So this is something that's called consequentialism. where you judge whether behavior is ethical by its consequences, okay? We'll talk more about this later. Another one uh, would be, it's called a deontology, where something is ethical if it's in accordance with a higher law. Okay, so consequences don't matter. Does this conform to a higher law? 
Then you have, uh, the Greeks would have something called virtue ethics, where you cultivated virtue, and if you cultivate virtue, and you are a virtuous person, what you do is ethical. Okay, so it's rooted in the person. And then the last one, and this is, you might recognize this, is basically it depends, Yeah, it depends, yeah, it depends on the situation, right? So situational ethics. So different people, different cultures lead to different ethical decisions, okay? So we'll kind of look at consequentialism, okay? What do you think about the ends justifies the means if uh, sacrificing this person's life saves the life of 100 people, <coughs> right? Terrorists come in and say, you need to kill the youngest member of the church, otherwise we're going to kill everybody. Well, let's go ahead and, you know, go to the nursery, kill the baby to save the rest of us. That's the ethical decision. What do you think about that? Malachi, you have thoughts. I think anytime you assign, well, consequentialism and utilitarianism go hand in hand. Yeah, same word. So anytime that you assign... Uh, like a mathematical value mm -hmm. to, to human life or to, to benefit, it, I would argue that it inherently becomes unethical. Okay. Um, so if, if at any point you're willing to, I mean, uh, I'm not saying we, and nobody would consider it because human lives are messy and mm -hmm. nobody wants to die. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot easier to kill a child than to die yourself mm -hmm. um, but if, if you were to say that one's life is worth more than another's life mm -hmm. um, or that you're not willing to die at the very least mm -hmm. um, then then you, you've already failed ethically okay other thoughts Judy oh I would say that would depend on where you are in your life Mm -hmm. In my life, I would be willing to sacrifice my life for sure. a child or another person. I mean, I'm soon going to be 81 years old, and okay. I've lived a long life. Yeah, so Judy, if that happens, we'll just... I know where I'm going, so I'm not, well, I'm not worried about that's good. Well, let's continue thinking about this idea of consequentialism. Like, what, what are some other problems with this? It seems kind of subjective. Okay. Like, who's to say that the option of killing the youngest member is, is better than okay. the other option? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, there is an element of subjectivity, right? Like, who determines the greatest utility? Yeah. Who says, right? Yeah. In, in your illustration, it moves the weight of responsibility from one group to another in a way that mm -hmm. is I think, unjust. So if these terrorists come in, they say we're going to kill 100 people, or you give us the smallest child to kill, and, and they say we're not going to give you the small child to kill, and they say, well, it's your fault that we're killing 100 people, but it's yeah. not their fault. Yeah. So it, it shifts the responsibility yeah. from one group to another who's not actually responsible. Yeah. 
Okay, I think also um, when you're trying to make an ethical decision, if you're only basing it off of what the consequences are, like that's not the only thing to consider when you're trying to consider what's the right thing. Like, uh -huh. You know, is this going to cause X, Y, or Z? Is this going to cause X, Y, or Z? Mm -hmm. Okay, this one. You know, it's, it's, it's very limited. You didn't, it didn't really take too much thinking. Yeah. You just kind of arrived at a conclusion based off of one factor. Okay, yeah, the outcome is the only factor. Yeah, yeah. Scott? I think too, though, I think sometimes we avoid a decision because we know it's not going to have perfect outcome. Like sometimes there are no, like most of the time, there's no outcome or choice that produces a perfect. So there's elements in which we, we think about what will produce the best result. In and so I've seen some people avoid making a certain decision because, well, it won't produce the perfect outcome. Whereas there, that might not be, yeah, the perfect outcome might not be an option. Okay. Yeah, Judy? In that case, too, it kind of puts people in a position of acting as God. Okay, yeah. Making uh -huh. the decision as to who's going to live or die, and that is mm -hmm. really not our job to do. That's God's decision. Yeah. And so, when yeah, we're and given an either or who's going to live, who's going to die, that's putting us in a position of making God's decision. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really interesting point because it's all about horizontal outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. So if you lie to accomplish something good, well, as long as something good is accomplished, you care. I mean, if, if you lie, it's who cares, right? It's kind of in response to that, you kind of like this deontological view of ethics that there is a higher law and it's like, let justice be done or the heavens fall, right? I don't care what happens, we are not killing the child. You do what you want. If we all have to die to preserve this ethical principle, then so be it, okay? So what's your analysis and assessment of that one? Critiques? I think it's the exact same thing as, as the legal system where it's, it's not the ends justifies the means, um, it's the means justifies the ends. Okay. And that if you act according to what is right, mm -hmm. the conclusion, no matter what the conclusion will be, uh -huh. was reached according to a, an appropriate standard, mm -hmm. and therefore <coughs> is, is permissible. Okay, so the means are the ends. Well, so this is all non-biblical, this is what the world thinks. Okay. Because that one right there sounds biblical, where we are accountable okay. to God. Uh -huh. um, so that would be the closest to a biblical worldview, probably. Uh -huh. um, I guess as Christians, we just need to make sure that we know what's man's word, what's God's word, and know the difference between the two. Otherwise, we'll get all mixed up and yeah. be confused. But, but yeah, yeah, we are responsible. We have mm -hmm. our... Um, our foundations in the Word of God, so we have to think biblically, think about how that would be applicable yeah. around us. And I think you bring up an important point. This by itself is not sufficient, right? So what is the higher law? How do you know the higher law, right? So if you were to just stop here, and we're going to return to this, if you're just stop here, it's like, this is definitely truer than this, because you have the issue of what is the higher law. Well, yeah, if it's Sharia law, 
then that's yeah. deontological, but horrifying. Yeah. And oftentimes the the degree of the evil that's perpetrated can be greater under that system because you feel a greater endorsement behind yeah. the greater power, greater sense of justice behind mm -hmm. your, yeah. your evil your choices. In consequentialism, you might care what other people around you think or do, but yeah. in, this, in this system, if you're wrong but you believe you know, you're the only one that's right, and mm -hmm. yeah. you're willing to do anything. Okay. Then we got another one, virtue ethics, which um, it's more of a Greek idea. I'm not sure how pervasive it is now. But what would be your assessment? That virtuous people do virtuous things. Well, it's saying basically that good people do good things, but it depends on their version of good. Yeah. It's kind of like a circular argument, right? I'm good because I do good, which means like, you know, so whatever I do is good, right? So you kind of, you kind of see the, obviously, being virtuous does lead to good behavior, but it's not good because I'm virtuous. It's like, where did the virtues come from, right? This would have to be predicated on this to a certain extent. And then, let's say, it depends on the situation or situational ethics. I wouldn't have an abortion, but if somebody else does, right, that would be like an example, a modern example. So what's, what's the issue with situational ethics? Like, it depends on the situation, depends on the context. That's wrong for you, but it's right for somebody else. Their, eth their ethics are ever-changing. Mm -hmm. So then, I mean, they can literally change it at will. Uh huh. So this, they don't really have that ethic. <clears throat> yeah, there's not a consistent ethic. Yeah. I think we saw that um, a week or so ago with the interrogation with the uh, president of Harvard, where they mm -hmm. were represent. Is it okay for genocide of the Jews? And that she wouldn't. She said, "Well, it depends on the situation. It depends yeah. on the context." So yeah. the worldview again, it's not. Yeah. It's. There's no absolute truth, so there's no absolute, mm -hmm. you know, virtue or where do you, where there's sinking sand other than the solid rock. Yeah, and it's very difficult to have a society when everybody has their own version of ethics and there's no right or wrong that's commonly agreed upon. Yeah. I also think situational ethics is usually tied really strongly with, like, Social or, or cultural like mm -hmm. governance, uh -huh. and so if if it's tied down to social governance, and there's societies, and there are societies in which rape and murder are commonplace and even accepted as an aspect of culture, then you cannot say consistently that you think rape and murder are always wrong, because rape and murder are only wrong here in America. Yeah. Now, if there are somewhere else, rape <coughs> and murder are okay. Yeah. Which there are places that would argue that, mm -hmm. then I, you know, if I was to hold decisional, situational ethics, I could not hold consistently that yeah. I think rape is bad, which, I mean, it's bad. Yeah, it's bad. like missionaries to India. Uh, when <coughs> her husband died, do you know what the widow was supposed to do? Throw herself on the funeral pyre. You know, be burned alive. Mm -hmm. Was it colonialism for them to say, you guys should stop doing that? <laughs> Right, Joshua, were you going to say something too? Yeah, I mean, there is a positive side situational ethics. We're, we're talking about sort of a relativism. Yeah. But there is no overarching moral yeah. command or principle that guides. So, uh -huh. But ethics, in part, is the question of how do you apply this 
moral command or this divine purpose to each given situation when it's not crystal clear. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, there are situations where it would be, be applied differently in one situation than in another situation, uh-huh. and that's the hard challenge of ethics. Yeah, nuance is different from <coughs> it depends on the situation. Because yeah. situa- situational ethics is more of like an anthropological <coughs> idea that one culture cannot judge another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is no higher standard that's above all of them. Yeah. yeah. Naomi? No, I was just going to say, like, real life, we did have the, the kids ethics teacher in Mexico City was, like, saying things like, yeah, no, we can't. It, we can't judge Africa for rape, for mm-hmm. rape and murder. Like, huh. I mean, I think uh-huh. she, she was yeah. saying these things out loud in the classroom. Yeah. It, yeah, it, it's incompatible yeah, with, saying. and this is Ryan, I, deontological ethical system, okay? Now, kind of returning to this issue, okay? Deontology, it basically means that there's a higher law. There's a higher law. So the question is, what higher law? And there's a couple of ways that people will answer this question. One is, and you probably have heard this before, natural law theory, okay? So you look at the way things are in nature, right? So you might make a natural law case against homosexuality by saying, um, in all the other species, you do not find homosexual pairings because the way they were designed was to reproduce. <coughs> okay? So what do you think about natural law theory? Is that a good ethical framework? What, what, what's the appeal of, let's say, of natural law? It answers to creation instead of the creator. Okay, it answers to the creation. But why? why is... Why is natural law and natural law theory very appealing to people who are trying to determine right and wrong? Because it leaves God out of it. They don't want to acknowledge God. Yeah, it leaves God out of it, right? So we've been trained in the U.S. to separate church and state, and that if you were to appeal to religion, right, then um, it's almost like your argument is disqualified. But if you appeal to nature and point out natural phenomenon like one reason why you should not abort a child is because a child has a unique DNA and that is distinct from the mother and that makes them a different person right so there's some natural law arguments that you can make that I think we would agree with and you can talk to an atheist or agnostic or a Muslim so there's kind of like this common ground that everyone can kind of talk about this, right? And it's appealing because it's really tangible. Yeah. Like it really, it like when when we see throughout the Bible, like yeah, like Christ Himself pointing to nature, you know, and saying uh-huh. like, look at this. And so, so I think there, it's really helpful to say, okay, like every whether you agree that God exists or not. Yeah, I well, mean, yeah, Paul says. He points to nature for proof of creator. Yes. Doesn't doesn't nature itself teach that a woman should have long hair? Right? So that would be an example of him using maybe natural law theory. Yeah, right? that God made us actual physical beings in a physical world. Yeah. And but it kind of makes sense. The problem being homosexuality is seen all throughout nature. Yeah, so now it's subject to interpretation, right? Because nature can give us facts. But 
how do we interpret those facts, right? But it should be stated that natural law theory comes out of a Christian worldview. Like mm -hmm. natural law theory did not derive from the East. Mm -hmm. It came out of the Christian worldview. Yep. Um, later became more associated with Catholicism, but this is way pre-Reformation. Mm -hmm. And it's people trying to say, um, not it did not come from a separation of church and state mentality. Yeah. That's how we use it now. But yeah. it came from how much can we learn from the first book of Revelation, right? Yeah. Which is nature. Yeah. How much can we learn from that? What does that teach us that's not spoken mm -hmm. in scripture? Mm -hmm. like, like arguments for against abortion, yeah. right? It's, there's not a lot in scripture Many of those arguments, even for believers, come from natural law. Mm -hmm. It's from looking at the world God made and piecing together, therefore, what leads to flourishing, you mm -hmm. know, what create, what constitutes a person, etc. Yeah. Et I'm not so, saying there's not a place for natural law. Right, but I'm just stating that it's not something that exists apart from Christianity. It is derivative from Christianity. Yeah. And really only exists in a Christian world. Yeah, and that's an important qualification, which we'll get to. Well, what were we going to say? Just think in agreement. Yeah, Becky, but also the definition of natural law, the foundation is no longer the Bible. It is now evolution and science falsely so-called. So the yeah. worldview is different. So they can say the same terms, but mean different. Things. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Is like It did come from a Christian worldview, and that is true. But it has been, it's been really hijacked in many ways by a scientific worldview, where you have evolutionary psychologists who will look at behavior and trace it back to some evolutionary advantage that it gives to people, mm -hmm. right? So that's why natural law is insufficient uh, for, for ethics, okay? And then, you know, the other way to get it, discover it, is through, right, it's through revelation. And again, you get into um, different forms of revelation, the Book of Mormon, look at Islam, uh, you even look at people who just kind of have like this inner intuitive sense that they might attribute to God or the Bible, right? So when we look at our foundation is, you know, I think natural law, when it's submitted to revelation, can be very powerful and illustrative. Revelation helps us to interpret natural law. Um, but ultimately, when people talk about right or wrong, right, everybody has an ethical system, right? So what makes ours more right than others? Well, because the author of ethics, God, has spoken to us in his word, right? That's what it comes down to. You know, that is the final say of right and wrong. And what happens is when you look at all these other ones, uh, one, they're against God's word. Two, um, it doesn't really lend to a real communal understanding of ethics and societal flourishing. Right? It's hard to have a society when everybody disagrees on what's right or wrong. It can kind of pull people apart. And you so what are subjective. Yeah, it's subjective, right? And, and you can't even really have confidence in it. No. And instead of reasoning through it, often ethics is uh, I think we've kind of lost the ability in our society to reason through these issues. It's now assumed and enforced, right? Ethics is determined by power, okay? That's what we'll, what it'll come down to. This ethics, ethical system will be enforced by power. Whether it's right or wrong, you're gonna feel the consequence. 
by whoever has power. Okay, so when this whole project of biblical ethics is to try to take what God's word says, understand its principles, understand its protection, and, and there's some things that you don't find in the Bible, right? Like abortion, you know, the technology to safely remove, uh, basically murder a baby, right, without harm to the life of a mother, uh, was kind of unknown at that time. You know, there might be some potion, I mean, the safe abortion just wasn't, wasn't really an option, right? So that would be an issue where we have to look at what the Bible says and know how to reason through scripture to answer that question. Judy? You just said it when you said murder. Mm -hmm. A baby. Yeah. And according to God's law, mm -hmm. murder is wrong. Yeah. And we're going to. And, and it know. doesn't make any difference. Murder is murder, whether it's yeah. a full grown adult or a child that's still an embryo. Yeah, and I think that's something where, like, when I first got here to this church, um, <coughs> one of my big projects when I kind of talked with people, is they all, everyone knew abortion was wrong. And I'm like, why is it wrong? Because it's murder. And then I say, how do you know that? Because the Bible says so, chapter and verse. And I found that, I think a lot of people who are properly educated in the biblical worldview will give the right answer, um, but might struggle to know where in scripture they can point to, to show that it is wrong. Okay, and so that's a lot of really what I want to do. So that kind of leads into kind of a larger question. Like when we look at this book of Revelation, you know, scripture, to determine right and wrong, there is um, some difficulty in doing that when we look at the Old Testament. Okay? So for this week and next week, maybe the week after, we're going to just have a time kind of dedicated to how does a Christian, New Covenant Christian, use the Old Covenant law? Okay, so everybody have their sheet here? So, so I'll go ahead and give you this, uh, this scenario. <coughs> While working at a restaurant, you strike up a friendship with Steve, a flamboyant waiter who is openly gay. Through the months you have known him, you have become burdened for his soul and desire to see him repent of his homosexual lifestyle. So finally, you work up the courage to talk to him about Jesus Christ and his need to turn away from sin, particularly that of homosexuality. His answer surprises you. He tells you that homosexuality is not a sin. So at what point in the conversation, what do you say? What, what would be your instinct? He says, it's not a sin. Why do you believe it's not a sin? Why do you believe it's not a sin? What else might you say? I like the counter question is good. Hmm? I just generally ask what what is a sin? Okay. How would what what would you determine? What's your standard for what's a sin? What's okay. A sin? <clears throat> yeah, Judy? I would say that the Bible says that men should not lie with a man like he would a woman. Okay. So that would be like one of the go to passages. Okay, so let's go to question B. So why is he quote Leviticus 18.22, which states, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. There he goes, right there. To which Steve instructs you that if you keep on reading, you come across Leviticus 19.19. 19. 
You are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. You shall not wear a garment upon you with two kinds of material mixed together. So are any of you guys wearing cotton, cotton, cotton poly, whatever? Right? You guys, anybody wearing mixed fabrics right now? I think, I looking at this, what is this? <laughs> Wool and polyester. Yeah. So I'm in violation of that right now. Okay. So uh, what would you say? Is it wrong for you guys to wear mixed fabrics? <coughs> Everyone's like, I feel like this is a trap. <laughs> it's a trap. Right? Can you guys eat shellfish? There's the old um, ceremonial laws, moral laws. Okay. And the moral laws are distinctly different. Okay. From I think the other question is, I think if, if you were to say that to Steve, I think his immediate response would be, well then, how do you, how do you tell the difference? Like, how, what, what point do you determine it's ceremonial? At what point do you determine it's not? Because they go hand in hand. You have one verse that says, you shall not, you shall not, you know, breed two kinds of animals, mm -hmm. you shall not sow your field two kinds of seed, and the next one yeah. is, don't sacrifice your kids to Molech. So like, you know, uh, how do you determine which is good and which is bad? Yeah. So uh, that's that's a very wise response. I'm, I'm I'm just saying, like, I think if you give that response, mm -hmm. Steve's going to respond with something Sounds like, like that. Malachi's had a conversation with Steve. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and honestly, um, you know, many, I, I was surprised, like, many homosexuals, um, there's many resources out there to educate them on how to engage with Christians. Mm -hmm. How do you address the so-called clobber verses? Uh, how do you push back? And one of the major things that they come that you'll come up against is, so why can you eat shellfish and why do you wear mixed fabrics? Why do you pick one law to obey but not another? Right? And that would be, I mean, and that is a fair question, right? You can't just pick and choose. You're accusing me of picking and choosing. You're picking and choosing. So who's right? And so, uh, what I want to do um, is kind of like answer that question. How do you know what law you should obey and what law you shouldn't? And if you don't have to obey the Old Testament, why do we even have it, right? Why not just be New Testament Christians? And if it's and you can even go beyond that, where some people say you just stick with the Apostle Paul and that's it. Right? So there's, so how do we kind of engage it? So I guess the purpose of the study is the Old Testament contains certain laws which in no way are applicable to today. Animal sacrifice, eating kosher, building railings on a roof, etc. For a number of reasons. Further, in this day and age, we're confronted with moral ethical decisions like cloning, euthanasia, abortion, which are not specifically mentioned in the Bible. Therefore, today we're going to learn how to extract principles from the Bible so that we might apply them to the formation of a Christian ethic and worldview. Okay? So before we do all of this, I want to give you uh, a real understanding of how to use the Old Testament in a way that's faithful and consistent, okay? So I think what you have to um, understand first is when you look 
at, let's say, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are basically part of a larger covenant given to the people of Israel. Okay? So, somebody want to venture forth uh, an attempt to define a covenant? Like, what's a covenant? Contract. Contract. Okay, that's partly true, but what would be the difference? Like, a, a contract is two parties make an agreement that if severed, there's a pre-agreed upon penalty for severing, right? Most contracts, but there's also contracts that can be imposed by a court in which one side imposes something okay. and the other side has to respect it or, or will or face suffer the consequence. Or suffer right. the consequence. Okay, so, that, so that's the basic, like, between two people, there's penalties that yeah, if you fire a football coach, you have to pay the, you know, a certain penalty to him, right? So what's the difference between that and a covenant? Covenant's one-sided. Covenant's one-sided. Who are the parties involved in the covenant? Typically a higher power. A higher power, right? So the thing with the covenant is it's not a promise to, between two people. It's not an agreement between two people. It's both people make a mutual um, covenant or promise to this higher power, to God. And if you break it, God deals with that person, right? So we saw Andrew and Melanie, right? They made a covenant, right? It wasn't just a contract. They both made a promise to God and thereby made a promise to each other in making that. Does that make sense? So covenant is uh, something that is fascinating about a covenant is that God has made a covenant with his people. Okay, so when you look at the first five books of the Bible, do you guys know what they're called? They're called the Torah or the Pentateuch. They're all written roughly at the same time, and they were written as... Moses was about to lead the Israelites into the conquest of Canaan to take what's called the Promised Land. So when you open up uh, the beginning of the Pentateuch to the book of Genesis, you see that shortly after God created uh, the heavens and the earth, and he told man to be fruitful and multiply and fill and subdue it, man rebelled against God, and as a result, they have been cursed. But within that curse was a promise that from the seed of a woman will come basically someone who will crush the head of, of the serpent, right? There's like this, this future hope that creation will be restored. And then it isolates on a, a certain individual named Abram. Somebody want to get um, Genesis 12, 1 through 3? Julie, do you have that? Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 3. Why don't you read that? Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay. So God made a promise, and it's interesting, like, you know how to swear on a higher power? When God makes a covenant, who does he swear upon? Himself. Himself. So I'm, I'm making a promise to you, Abraham. You will be a great nation. And, and even though he was beyond childbearing years and his wife was 
definitely beyond childbearing years. God still gave them a son, Isaac. And through Isaac, uh, you have <coughs> Isaac and Jacob, right? And then you have like the 12 sons. And so there's this whole narrative of God choosing one family among all the families to bless all the families of the earth. And it was going to be through the nation of Israel. And so as you kind of move on through history, right? Um, Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of the sons is hated by the others, sent off into slavery, eventually finds himself in Egypt, then becomes basically the, the ruler of the land and is able to deliver his father's family from famine. And they reside there for 400 years. They are enslaved eventually by a pharaoh. They cry out to the God of their fathers, and he sends Moses to deliver them to the promised land. And then you go through this, um, this significant event of the Exodus, where there's ten different plagues that eventually break Egypt, break the pharaoh, they are delivered through supernatural means, and then they are taken to the foot of Mount Sinai, and God basically says, I have delivered you for a purpose. And what I'm about to do is I'm going to make you a great nation, right? So remember when Abraham said, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed? Within that is this promise to Israel that they're going to be uh, a holy nation. In fact, let's go ahead and turn to, actually on the bottom of page 2, Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Someone want to read that for me? Yeah, Ashley, go ahead. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall say, then you shall be my own possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine. Then you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Okay. So what benefit does the Lord offer to Israel? What's just saying? What's he offering to do? Make them a king and a priest and a holy nation. Make them a king and a priest and a holy nation. Now, and in return, what, what must they do? Obey his voice. They must obey his voice, okay? And keep the covenant. Yeah, and keep the covenant, right? So now what's interesting is like the Abrahamic covenant is what we call a unilateral covenant. That no matter what you do, by virtue of a relationship to Abraham, you will be, um, he'll make you a great nation. This is about how you are to function as a kingdom of priests and as a holy nation. Okay? And as we keep on reading, we will note that if you do good as a nation, you will be blessed. If you do bad, you will be cursed. <laughs> But notice the phrase holy nation, right? How will Israel distinguish itself as holy, right? That's what it means to be separate. How will it distinguish itself from the rest of the nations? Yeah. Well, worshiping only God, not God, not man's gods. Yeah. So one of the chief ways is they will have one God. They're not going to have a God of the rain, the God of the herd, the God of war, God of wisdom. Um, they will have one God, okay? How else will they be different from the rest of the nations? 
They're going to obey all the laws, right? But what might be some of the laws that might make them different from others? Circumcision on the eighth day. Circumcision on the eighth day. Don't kill other? your kids for rain. Don't kill your kids for rain. Yeah. Don't mix fabrics. Don't mix fabrics. What they eat. What they eat. Keeps them very separate. Yeah, keeps them very separate because it's very di- you know that kind of kept the Gentiles and the Jews separate because they had a different diet. Anything else? Keep the Sabbath, right? <clears throat> you guys, why is it anybody working here? Right? That would be very different. So they were to be very distinct and separate. Okay? They're also to be a kingdom of priests. So what sorry. What does it mean to be a, a priest? What the representative of oh, sorry. Okay, go. Okay, Ashton, you go. We're gonna say. I I said like a teacher. Okay, a teacher. We're gonna say. A representative of a deity. A representative of a deity. Okay, and that's half of it. Mediator. A mediator, right? So not only are we representing the deity to the people, right? You represent the people to the deity. Okay, does that make sense? So the the idea is that Israel, you know, when you kind of have like the. Let's see how well I can draw the Mediterranean here. All right, let's see what I can do. So, just got the boot, Greece, kind of circle around here to North Africa. Got the Red Sea here. And it kind of goes on. Okay, so here's, here's Israel. Right? So you got the gateway, you know, to Africa, to Asia, to Europe. But they're not going out. Rather, they are the crossroads of these empires. Right? So the idea is they're placed in the promised land. So as the nations transit and pass through, they will see them as a very different people and the hope is that this kingdom of priests will mediate God's presence to the entire world from a static location in Israel. Does that make sense? And this was going to be God's means of, of blessing the nations. Okay? So this is kind of a major concept as far as the focus. So why is it very important that these priests maintain holiness? Why does there seem to be like extra judgment for Israel when they fail? A whole lot of people are going to see it. A lot of people will see it, yeah. I mean, for the men's, uh, for our summit, we're going to have, you know, judgment comes upon the house of the Lord. And I think in the same way that it applies to us Christians, yeah, it would apply to the people of Israel and those who have much and who know much, uh-huh. much is required. Uh-huh. There was no other nation on earth yeah. who was designated to do what Israel was designated to do. Yeah. So if they fail in their responsibility, nobody else was going to do it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot riding on them. Yeah. Yeah. They need to get God right. Portray God correctly. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the nations will have a corrupted witness 
of the one true God. Does that make sense? So Israel kind of goes on and they and they accept this covenant, right? They agree and they go through a formal covenant ratification. And then you get into the stipulations of the covenant. Okay? So in order to fulfill ensure that Israel will fulfill their calling as holy nation and a kingdom of priests, God issues the Ten Commandments. These stipulations form the core of a larger corpus of the law, which expands upon each of the Ten Commandments. Now, if the Israelites fail to live up to the standards of the Mosaic Covenant, God promises to smite them with disease, famine, and bloodshed. Yet, if they obey the commandments, they would prosper both spiritually and materially. Okay? So why was it loving for God to punish Israel if they were unfaithful? Why was it loving? It was part of the covenant. Part of the covenant? So yeah. You gotta keep his side. If you have to keep his side, then what's the point of the covenant? Uh-huh. Because faithfulness is so good. Yeah. Because whatever law God had gave, it was for the it was it was good yeah. to be kept. It was good. It was good for Israel. And who else was it good for? The for the nation. The whole universe. Whole right? So they're singled out to kind of force them into being a, a, a blessing, right? So in what sense was a Mosaic Covenant conditional? Is conditional in what sense? There's both blessings and curses associated with it, and which yeah. one they get determines <coughs> is determined by their behavior. Yeah. Your behavior determines whether or not you get blessed or cursed. Okay? So in what sense was it unconditional? They can't not be God's people. They can't not be God's people. Right? Whether or not they will be blessed or cursed depends on their behavior, but they will never not be God's people, okay? It's also conditional on who it applied to, right? If you're you know, a donation of Israel, mm -hmm. if you're a child of Abraham, yeah. it's applied to you. You were you were outside of that. Yeah, the same expectations were not necessarily there. Although you could join mm -hmm. and could be a part of the nation of Israel. And so all that to say, um, you know, here's the conclusion. The Ten Commandments are the centerpiece of the Mosaic Covenant. God through Moses promised to make Israel a chosen nation set apart for service to him. They were to be the agency by which the nations would come to know God. The Ten Commandments served as the means in which they would maintain their faithfulness to God through their worship and their conduct with one another. Sadly, as the story goes, these stipulations were largely disregarded or distorted. Thus Israel lost its light among the nations, yet there will come a time in the future when God will ensure their faithfulness by doing what the law could not do by itself. will infuse them with the Holy Spirit and circumcise their hearts so that they might be inclined to obey the Lord. One scholar notes, even though Israel today is not behaving as a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, a generation of Israelites will yet do the same in accordance with God's irrevocable promise. The same observation applies to Abraham's covenant and his ultimate fulfillment. Okay, so that's, that's all the setup, okay? So the big takeaway is these Old Testament laws apply to who? Israel. Are you Israel? The answer is no. Okay, so... If we don't have to obey these laws because we're not Israel, 
one, what laws do we need to obey? And two, does that mean we can just ignore the Old Testament law? Right? If you want to find out the answers to those questions, <laughs> come next week. All right, let me pray. Well, Father, I do thank you for just this curious uh, group of uh, brothers and sisters who want to know how to please you with their lives. And I pray that this, uh, this uh, short class was helpful for them to think clearly about the need to know your revelation and to apply your revelation in their everyday life. And I pray that in the coming uh, months as we study biblical ethics that you'll just give us a deep understanding of your truth and how it applies to our decisions. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>